This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Meeting a celebrity is strange. I once met Kelly Clarkson at a work event, and if you look at the picture I took with her, you'd think I was her biggest fan, rather than the more passive appreciator that I am. But but people who are famous carry with them a certain inherent gravitas that I think begs a nature versus nurture question. Are they famous because of this charisma, or do they have this charisma because they're famous? In this week's story, teller Jennifer Anglin shares a moment where, while on a film set, she received an unexpected proposition from an actor with a serious cult of personality and the power imbalance she navigated as a young actor trying to make it in show business. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in November 2018, Second Story is proud to present Bond Girl. He leaned in close. A sweet waft of his four o'clock scotch drifted softly into my nose as his famous brogue purred my name. Well, Jennifer. He remembered my name. He stretched a lion-like paw past my shoulder and propped it on the cool marble by my ear. I pressed harder into the wall for support. The heavy linen of his shirt was rolled to the elbow, exposing short, wiry hair flecked with gray. His character's jacket was slung through the crook of his free arm, hand on hip. What do I say? I felt overheated in my wool suit and hat. A bead of sweat rolled down my back. Dizziness flickered around the edge of my vision. How are they treating you here on our little film set? It was 1985, downtown Chicago. I was 24, and this was my first major motion picture. Two years earlier, I had escaped my small Michigan hometown to seek my fortune, and maybe more importantly, to prove the small town naysayers wrong. It's a nice hobby, honey, but nobody makes a living as an actor. Watch out for those casting couches. Girls get eaten alive in that business. Well, so far, I hadn't been eaten alive, and somehow I had managed to join the handful of Chicago actors who had landed roles in The Untouchables, starring Kevin Costner, Andy Garcia, Charles Martin Smith, and Sean Connery. And though my role was small, my scenes were with all the stars. What luck. Call time my first day was 5 a.m., and luck being fickle, I was deathly ill. My throat felt like I'd swallowed a cheese grater, and I shivered with chills under my hooded sweatshirt. It was a dark and drizzling late September morning, and it took everything I had to drag myself out of bed at 3.30 a.m. to catch the red line to the loop. A perky young production assistant named Ashley led me to my little trailer and said, make yourself at home, hair and makeup will send for you when they're ready. Lacking the energy to sit up, I stretched out and promptly fell asleep face down on the couch. An hour later, I was awakened by a knock on the door. Ashley was back to take me to hair and makeup. I peeled myself off the couch, wiped the drool off of my cheek, and followed. As I was about to step up to the makeup trailer, the door opened, 
And in the half light of an overcast dawn, deep in the urban canyon of South LaSalle Street, golden rays spilled out all around the silhouette of the movie star. He was tall and standing two steps above me. I staggered back. He radiated power, charisma, animal magnetism. I had never experienced anything like it. I've never experienced it since. My jaw dropped. I stared dumbly. Good morning, Mr. Connery. This is Jennifer. She'll be joining us for a few days. Lovely to meet you, Jennifer. The movie god smiled broadly at me as though he found something amusing. Nice to meet you, Mr. Connery. Yes, well, see you on set. I stepped back to make room for him to pass and stood staring after him dumbfounded until Ashley said, okay, up you go. Stumbling into the trailer, I was led to a makeup chair and plopped down. My throat was nasty sore, breath atrocious, hair uncombed. I sat back in the chair and saw my face in the mirror. There was an indented line running diagonally down my right cheek where my head had rested on my arm while sleeping. <laughs> Drool residue was smeared from lower lip to ear. Nice to meet you, Mr. Connery, indeed. A couple of days and some antibiotics later, I was back on set and feeling better. We were shooting in the Rookery building. It's considered an architectural masterpiece, but its marble-lined hallways and wrought iron staircases are none too comfortable for standing around waiting. For actors, film sets are all about waiting. I had spent my brief moments on camera, lurking around the periphery of the police headquarters set, listening at doorways and casting significant glances at the movie's stars. My character was a spy for Al Capone. I had spent my moments off camera also lurking around the periphery of the police headquarters set and trying not to get caught casting glances at the movie's stars. I mean, they were right there, running lines, hanging out, goofing off. The younger men hung on every word Sean Connery said, but none of them spoke to me. I didn't know how to break the ice. I didn't know if I was allowed to talk to them or what I would say. It was my first movie. I didn't know the protocol. Meanwhile, the wardrobe mistress had given explicit direction not to sit while in costume, lest the fabric crease. So I wandered, aimless, feeling like an outsider, and trying to ignore the pain of standing in heels on stone floors. So it happened that I was leaning my back against the marble wall down the hall from where our next scene was being set up. It was late afternoon and very warm. We had shot a couple of scenes, but mostly waited. Even the stars seemed bored. This was before cell phones, and I had no book with me, so I was studying the perforations in the toes of my shoes when I felt him walk up. Now, as he settled in, paw against the wall, he was breaking the ice. How are they treating you here on our little film set? Fine, thanks. Do you live in Chicago? Yes, but I may move to LA soon. Ah, so you have ambition. <laughs> he raised an eyebrow. His eyes twinkled. That famous mouth crooked up on one side. He was really close. 
I guess I do. My eyes twinkled back, my mouth crooked up. And now he was talking about Chicago and the penthouse Paramount had provided for him. It's a beautiful city. The views are spectacular and the restaurants. And what's that I'm saying back? My mouth is moving, but I can't hear myself clearly. Did I mention he was close? Wow, that sounds wonderful. No, I haven't been to Ambria. I'll have to try it sometime. No way in hell I could afford to go to Ambria. His eyes sparkled. I sparkled back. Oh my God, are we flirting? I was pretty sure we were flirting. It occurred to me that being voted biggest flirt in my high school class did not mean I was prepared for this situation. I mean, bond? I was out of my depth. He had me cornered, and it was thrilling to be the object of his attention. He was older now than in the Bond movies, but still, well, hot. I mean, for a guy my dad's age. Oh my God, he's my dad's age and we're flirting. Do you live downtown? Me? Oh, no, I live way up north, you know, where the regular people live. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, I never have seen the penthouse at the Ritz. Wow, a lake view right from bed, <laughs> nice. There was palpable amusement mixed with challenge in those deep brown eyes. And now he was purring on about his sheets. Oh, he has 800 thread count sheets. The only way to truly appreciate them is to be naked. He was inches away, looking me straight in the eye, smiling wickedly. Oh, was he having fun. In my mind's eye, I suddenly saw his penthouse, his view, his sheets, and me, naked, between them. I was invited. Oh, but what would we talk about? Now, I'm sure talking wasn't part of his plan, but still, how would it end? Well, it would probably end with me doing the walk of shame the next morning, never to see him again. I didn't have any illusions about sleeping my way to the top. The penthouse was as far as this offer was likely to get me. None of this is to imply that I was particularly virtuous or virginal. I mean, this was the mid-80s. I had been born into the free love 60s and come of age in the sleazy disco 70s. We were post-sexual revolution and pre-AIDS awareness, and sex was, well, free, but still. While it was exciting to be the object of his attention, it occurred to me that I wasn't really interested in being an object used for the evening and then discarded. Did I want to go with the man just because he was a star? Here I was, up against the wall in the intimate, overpowering presence of world-class charisma, and I had no idea how to respond. In fact, it occurred to me that if I said one more word, I was likely to end up naked between those silky sheets like so many Bond girls before me. My mouth opened and closed, but no sound came out. The next thing I knew, I was sliding slowly down the smooth marble wall. <laughs> Creases in my suit be damned. Words having abandoned me down was the only way out. 
I came to rest crouching near the floor, hands over my face in embarrassment. Embarrassment that I couldn't speak. Embarrassment that he saw the same picture in his head that I saw in mine. Embarrassment that I clearly couldn't stay afloat in those particular waters. I looked up and there he was, grinning from ear to ear. He brushed his hands together once, twice, as though sweeping away crumbs, then winked and strode back down the hallway. The cat didn't really need to eat the mouse. He just wanted to play with her for a while. And truth be told, the mouse had kind of enjoyed it. Mr. Connery went on to win an Oscar for his performance in that film. Most of my part ended up on the cutting room floor, but one blink or you'll miss it scene remains. My character walks out of an elevator, twinkles her eyes at poor Charles Martin Smith, who is about to die in the same elevator, then turns and looks coldly as the doors close on his fate. I moved to LA shortly after my brush with Bond. Contrary to the naysayers, I did okay. I got a regular gig on General Hospital, guest starred on some nighttime shows, and even got to play some cool aliens on Babylon 5. Along the way, I had many an opportunity to think of Mr. Connery, our little tete-a-tete, and how grateful I was to him. He had given me a secret weapon, a mental trick that saw me through the shark-infested waters of Hollywood. Whenever I was confronted with, well, let's just say a powerful man with a less than decent proposal, I would think to myself, I'm the girl who turned down James Bond. <laughs> this guy's got nothing. This story was curated by Deb Lewis and produced by Sydney Ackler with music and sound design by Shane Longbane and Jeff Schaller. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Before we sign off, we want to acknowledge the serious implications lying underneath this story. At the center is an ambitious young actor who is propositioned by someone with much more power. While Jennifer declined the advances, we know that the story is very different for others and want to take this moment to highlight the organization Time's Up Now. Time's Up Now's work is rooted in ending workplace harassment and building a world where everyone is safe and respected at work. Learn more at timesupnow.org. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, Jessica Wetmore, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.